Dr. Nick Trakakis is a research fellow and lecturer at Monash University. He is a frequent collaborator with Graham Oppie, whom I interviewed previously, and has published over a dozen journal articles and scholarly books, including his latest, End of Philosophy of Religion. Dr. Trakakis, welcome to the show. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Nick, I would love to begin by hearing your personal faith journey. Were you raised religiously, and how did you get to where you are now? I was raised religiously, you could say. Uh, I was brought up in the Eastern Orthodox Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Both my parents are fairly religious in their own way, Uh, so I would regularly accompany them to church on Sundays and um, I'd be introduced to various aspects of of the Christian faith by them. But both my parents are almost illiterate, so reading and finding out about the essentials of the Christian faith is something that I had to do myself and find my own way around in that way. Uh, so it was not really until late in, in high school when uh, I began to ask the sorts of questions that lead one into either in, into a religious worldview or, or decisively a, away from it. So I began to ask the kind of philosophical questions, you know, who are we, where, are we, where, where, are we, where do we come from, where are we going? and so on. Uh, And that was largely the influence of a well-known contemporary Greek novelist called Nikos Kazantzakis, who is is most famous for his novel Zorba the Greek, but it was actually his more religious, his later novels and more more religious ones, particularly The The Last Temptation of Christ, which uh, got me thinking about uh, these questions about the meaning and purpose of life Uh, and it was through him that I was introduced to philosophy it was through his novels because his novels are very philosophical he relies quite a bit on the ideas of Nietzsche and Bergson Uh, so after dipping into his work I would go off and read Nietzsche and and Bergson Uh, this was still in high school and um, then when it came to deciding well what do I want to do after leaving high school What, what program of study do I want to pursue I almost naturally thought, well, philosophy is, is, is really where, where my heart lies. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it was through my philosophical and uh, studies and further reading in, in, in religion and theology that um, I began to learn more about the faith that I was brought up in. And I then took up eventually studies in theology. Um, and there was a, a, a short period when I had a, uh, you could call it something like a, a crisis of faith when I uh, left the church and didn't really, uh, there were a lot of reasons behind it, but when, when I was doing my postgraduate studies in philosophy uh, and I began to delve again in a serious way in uh, questions of religious faith, that's when I slowly began to find my way back into the Christian fold. Um, And it's been a long journey to um, return to Christianity. Um, 
uh, and not, it hasn't been an easy one, but so but that, that's in very rough outline the contours of my development in the religious life, so to speak. Hmm. So have you ended up back at something like your Eastern Orthodox upbringing? Yes, yes. Uh, that's pretty much where I am now. Well, Nick, you're a bit of an odd character, is what I'll say, because you're a Christian, but you could have fooled me, because you've written a book called The End of Philosophy of Religion, you wrote another book defending the main atheistic argument from evil, uh, right. and you regularly collaborate with a leading atheist philosopher, Graham Oppie, and you edited a collection of writings uh, by another leading atheist philosopher, William Rowe. So, right, right. are you? Do you do that kind of thing on purpose, or what's your motivation? Uh, no, no, no. Well, the, the my work on 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 Rowe arose out of my uh, doctoral studies, mm-hmm. and um, even though in the book itself that came out of that, where I do defend, as you say, Rowe's arguments from evil. It is a, I guess I could have flagged this in a much more explicit way in the book itself, but I do say that the defense is a, is a limited one in the sense that I only, I'm only considering there one particular piece of evidence against the existence of God. I'm not considering the entire case for and against the existence of God. Right. And I, and I say that if the entire case were considered I believe that the evidence would uh, favour the existence of God, so it would overturn or defeat Rowe's argument in that kind of indirect way. As far as the the, the more personal collaborations uh, that I've had with people like Rowe and Graham Oppie, well, I don't think there's an inconsistency there at all. Um, uh, we're always respectful of each other's personal views, uh, we get along very well, we work well together, so as far as personal friendship goes, I, I don't think, you know, uh, uh, the fact that we have very different uh, beliefs and approaches to philosophy and religion should uh, get, in our, get in the way, and, um, and and Bill Rowe, I should say, is, uh, I met him briefly when I was in the States a few years back, and um, he's a wonderful person, one of the uh, nicest person you persons you'd ever come across. I hope that explains things a little bit. (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of the reasons I actually asked is because something inside of me gives me a bit of pleasure whenever I'm able to take down a common atheistic argument, like a lot of the the stuff that the new atheists in America have written. Right, Um, right. As being an atheist, I feel like uh, it might allow me to connect a bit better with my believing readers who will say, oh, okay, this isn't just, you know, a, a crazy atheist like Richard Dawkins. This is someone who actually thinks about all the issues and thinks that, you know, some of the atheistic arguments are strong and some of them aren't, maybe. And I wonder That's if right. maybe you have some of the same feeling uh, from your end. Are you trying to connect to the other side a little bit? Well, originally that wasn't my intention. When I was investigating Rowe's arguments, his evidential arguments from evil, I simply wanted to see for myself what would the the argument from evil, when stated in a particularly strong way, as it is in in Rose's case, whether it would succeed. Uh, so how 
how strong is the case against God's existence uh, from the evidence of evil and suffering? Roe presents a particularly forceful version of, of his problem, so I thought I'd focus on, on his arguments and um, see whether any kind of uh, reasonable response can be made. So it, it wasn't really a way of kind of engaging with people who held very different views from myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was more just trying to work my own way through a very difficult problem, philosophical problem. Yeah. Well, we've been talking about your book, The God Beyond Belief, about yeah. William Rowe's uh, argument from evil. I wonder if you might, uh, in that book you talk about two common theistic strategies in responding to Bill's argument, and I wonder if you might explain what those are and why you think that they are inadequate. Uh, well, I presume you mean by the two theistic strategies, the development of a theodicy and skeptical theism. Um, I could go through each of those. One of the most common ways of responding to the problem of evil uh, as a theist is to construct a theodicy. And a theodicy literally means a justification of God, uh, a way of understanding God's ways. And, uh, and this is done by attempting to offer a reasonable explanation as to why God would create a world such as ours which is littered with evil and suffering. And so, and this is done by attempting to identify the reasons that God might have, not that God actually has, but the reasons that God might have, might plausibly be thought to have, in creating a world such as this and specifically in permitting uh, humans and animals to suffer. Uh, and there are all sorts of different reasons that um, theistic philosophers have offered as, as potential uh, plausible candidates for God's reasons for permitting suffering. Um, the most well-known are, are things like uh, human free will, the development of moral character, uh, the, the kind of soul-making theodicy that John Hick is renowned for, mm-hmm. um, the preservation of a natural system of orderly and regular natural laws. There are all sorts of reasons, all sorts of potential uh, justifications for God's permission of suffering. And they're, they're, uh, So that's one way you could go. And in the book, I focused mainly on... Uh, Theodicies for natural evil, that is evil that results from either purely or mainly from the uh, from natural processes. So things like uh, uh, illnesses such as Alzheimer's, uh, disabilities such as blindness and deafness, um, natural disasters that result in uh, great loss of life such as uh, tsunamis and um, cyclones, all these things, presuming that they're not the result, or not primarily the result of the misuse of human free will, Mm -hmm. could be thought of as natural evils, in the sense that no human being can be held morally accountable for for their existence. So I thought when I was writing the book that explanations for moral evil could 
perhaps be found in terms of the use and abuse of human free will. I thought at least human free will could go a fair way in explaining moral evil, but that left unaccounted for a whole range of natural evils. And so I thought I ran through some of the major theodicies that were on offer and I came to the conclusion that none of these theodicies adequately explained uh, God's permission of natural evil. So I thought there was a big uh, lacuna in uh, contemporary work in theodicies in the sense that uh, natural evil uh, remained a a major source of difficulty for, uh, for theists. At least, for, for, at least for theistic theodicies. So then I turned my attention to one possible way out of this, and that is the, uh, the sceptical theist approach, which holds that, well, given the kind of limits we have in, in our nature, in our intelligence, and, and so on, as human beings, and given the kind of being that God is, that is infinite in knowledge, in power, in goodness, and so on, uh, we cannot possibly hope to understand all of God's reasons for permitting evil and suffering. Right, that's the God is mysterious response. God, yeah, the appeal to the mystery of God's ways. Um, and that is a, a tradition, a way of thinking that goes back a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that this has a bit of truth in it. However... Um, it raises an even more difficult problem, namely the problem of divine hiddenness. That is, why then does God remain so hidden from us if we cannot understand his reasons? Uh, wouldn't we at least expect to understand that God has good reasons? We might not be able to know what these reasons are because we just simply, they might be too complicated for us and so on, but we should expect, shouldn't we, that we know that God has good reasons for permitting all this suffering. So I thought that remained an unanswered question if you took the sceptical theist approach. So that, that were the two approaches, the two responses that I focused on. Actually, you know, I do want to ask you about the God is mysterious response because right. a lot of atheists will just not even take that seriously at all. It's kind of like if I if I came to you and said, Nick, I'm telling you, you got to believe me, there's a flying spaghetti monster and he rules the yeah, universe yeah. and he's invisible and um, yeah. the reason people are, you know, taller over time is because there's more people on the planet and he has fewer tendrils to push down on our heads and that's why people are taller. And, you know, all we can make up all yeah. these stories, but this theory introduces lots and lots and lots and lots of problems, but the flying spaghetti monster for every one of those problems would be able to say, well, the flying spaghetti monster is so much more intelligent than us. He has a reason, um, but we just can't understand what it is. So that's, you know, you can, if you're allowed to give the God is mysterious response, you can get away with believing literally anything. Anything. Yeah, well, I'm actually, I I don't actually think so because, um, well, for a few reasons. Firstly, uh, unlike the uh, spaghetti monster hypothesis, <laughs> theists <laughs> generally think that there is, they have independent reasons for 
thinking that the world is a creation of God, mm-hmm. of a God who is perfectly good and so on. So they're not just simply uh, inventing this idea of God in order to explain suffering. But the other point is that, the point that I made a bit earlier, that there is some truth, I think, in the, in the sceptical fear's response. Because I think it would be very unusual, to say the least, if we did entirely comprehend and understand God. That, that would be... It, it, that, 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 it sounds almost absurd that we could understand God, uh, given the kind of being... Um, that God is, I mean, it really, uh, the, the, the distance between humanity and God is so great that the very presumption that we could understand everything, about, everything there is to, to know about God, uh, particularly to understand God's <coughs> reasons for permitting all the suffering or reasons for doing everything that he does, um, does sound a bit implausible. So I think something more of a kind of a middle way might be a bit more reasonable, a middle way between not having any understanding at all and understanding everything there is to understand. Let me tell you one more story, and I'd love to hear what your response is to this. So, sure. so let's say there was just the most brilliant, intelligent human being ever born, some kind of crazy mutant or something. And by age 10, he had solved several math equations that have been stumping our best mathematicians for 10 years. By age 11, he had come up with an agreement that uh, everyone was, every state in the the world was motivated to abide by, and so he achieved world peace. By age 12, he had cured cancer. Um, by uh, you know, and and he all, this whole time he was an extremely moral, giving person. He's making the world a better place. Right. And right. then let's say at age fifteen, he decides to, and his his intelligence isn't questioned. His his existence isn't questioned. His morality isn't questioned. Um, but right. at age sixteen, he decides to rape a young girl, and he right. tells everyone. Um, Trust me on this one. I've done all the calculations. This actually works out for the best, and this is really what's best. And then, uh, yeah. you know, the next month he decides to he he engineers the slaughter of an entire tribe of people or something like that. And again, he's <laughs> he's and and we can imagine the yeah, world yeah. dividing itself into two groups of people. One group of people saying this is insane. He needs to be stopped. And the other group of people yeah, saying, yeah. look, he's really smart. He seems to know what he's doing. He's got to have a good reason. We can't understand it. We know he's way smarter than we are. Um, what What would you say? <laughs> That's an absurd. Oh story. well, I would say unhesitatingly that he's got to be stopped uh, <laughs> because uh, that is the only option there is when it comes to um, things of that sort. But uh, I don't think uh, the kind of person you're describing is anything like God because. The very central belief about God, uh, at least in the Christian tradition, uh, or the, the, the kind of um, the most appropriate name for God amongst all the different names that God is said to have, is love. So if that is how God is known, then um, that's the starting point in attempting to have some kind of understanding about who God is. Now, the kind of person you described is very smart and so on, but 
uh, he could not possibly be identified with love itself. Um, no matter how kind or morally good he might be, um, he is not love. Um, so now this doesn't all of a sudden to say God is love doesn't all of a sudden answer the problem of evil. Uh, all the usual questions still arise. Um, but what it does do, it, it forces us to reconsider. Well, who? Who is this God that you identify with love? Especially given that uh, he's created a world as, uh, which contains so many horrors as our world does. Um, and then, and this ties in with some of my more recent work in the problem of evil, uh, what is really required, I think, in order to attain a fuller and more adequate understanding of the problem of evil is to take a step back and ask some questions about well who is the kind of who is the god that you're that you're kind of putting on trial here uh, is this is it really the god of um, well because there are so many different conceptions of god mm-hmm. and a lot of those are not very representative of the kind of God that you find in many of the theistic traditions. So I think you really, what, what the problem of evil really forces uh, theists to do is to reconsider or to go a bit deeper into their own way of thinking about God. Um, at least that's one of the lessons to come out of, I think, uh, a, a proper examination of the problem of evil. Well, I think the the atheist is still going to see a parallel between my story and the Christian concept of God. We could tweak it a little bit and let's say the really smart guy on earth um, didn't commit rape or slaughter but just permitted them and told everyone else to permit them as well um, because it would be yeah, part of yeah. higher plan or something. Um, the idea of, of that analogy, of course, is that supposedly God is in control of the universe and he does permit all those things um, but for reasons that we can't understand and in the same way that we would want to stop the really smart person uh, who we know exists and has done all these things and, and who claims to be really moral why wouldn't we either try to stop God if we believe that God was permitting all of these things or yeah, say yeah. that a God of love is not the kind of God that exists well Look, these are good questions, but I, I think uh, I'm not necessarily opposed to atheism. I think atheism serves a very, uh, <clears throat> a very, um, how can I put it, uh, salutary function in divesting us from false idols, uh, the kinds of gods that. Uh, a lot of philosophers have in mind when they're discussing the problem of evil. Um, so, when you're thinking of the problem of evil along the lines of that you have just suggested, uh, well, a God who uh, is faced with decisions such as whether to permit or to somehow prevents uh, a particular 
instance of evil, I think you need to take a step back and, and think, well, what exactly is the relationship between God and the created world when you're thinking about God along these lines? Um, does the very distinction even between permitting and intending make sense in the case of God, in the case of a being who knows exactly how the future will unfold even before it's occurred. So just generally speaking, there are questions that I think need to be asked that are not asked often enough about the kind of relationship that God is said to have between himself and his creatures and how you understand this relationship will impact on how you understand and try to resolve the problem of evil. Again, it's not a question of you know, God creating the world and then seeing that something goes wrong and, and then intervening and trying to prevent it, like some kind of a deus ex machina. It's that kind of conception of God is something which I would agree with the atheists that we should rid ourselves of. But there are other ways of understanding God which uh, I, I think are, are more plausible, at least insofar as they give us a better understanding of the problem of evil. Hmm. How might a Christian come to a slightly different understanding of God that would maybe grapple with the problem of evil better than some traditional notions of God? Well, One, one thing I think that uh, has to be gotten rid of, uh, I believe, is the very idea that um, that you find in a lot of uh, theodicies that God permits or, or intends some suffering in order to bring about some greater good. The very idea that, uh, uh, for example, God allows a child to be raped or murdered for the sake of uh, some greater good, some good that's outweighs that evil and could not have been achieved without the occurrence of that evil. Uh, I think that way of conceptualizing the relationship between God and humans and the way of, the, that way of thinking about, about the relationship also between good and evil is, uh, I think, not just wrong, but it borders on an incoherence. Uh, I don't think morality itself works that way. Um, I don't think that really offers a, a plausible understanding of the nature of good and evil. Um, there are all sorts of problems here, but um, just a few very a few problems that I could just quickly mention would would include things like well, um, how do we weigh goods and evils if we think that these goods are, are, are far greater than these evils or in some, in some sense they're, they're worth the, the cost of, 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 of these evils? How, how, do right. we, how, how do we weigh them up? I mean, and, and where does one evil start and, 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 and finish? Well, uh, what are the the boundaries, um, someone's experience of uh, a particular evil such as, such as rape, uh, it doesn't just uh, 
begin and end at a, at a, at a specific moment. It mm. could remain with them throughout their life. And how do you quantify things like that? Mm. And then when you... I think it's also uh, um, one of the facts about our experience. Now, could be... You could question whether it's just a... How, how veridical the experience is, but we do experience certain evils as just being unconditionally evil and, and, and not, there's no way of justifying their existence. They're just uh, completely and utterly gratuitous. They serve no good purpose. Um, now, by offering all these different justifications and explanations for, for these evils, seems to deny the very reality. I mean, these, these evils will not be evil if we could rationalize and justify them in certain ways. Um, especially if we think that, well, in the long term, especially in some hereafter, when we look back in the light of, you know, say, a God's eye kind of perspective, we will see that these evils were really just the equivalent of some kind of uh, scratch on a knee. They're, they're just nothing compared to the great, uh, the great good of some kind of heavenly experience that we are given in compensation for our sufferings. So, um, if that's what the evils actually amount to, something akin to you know a, a minor scratch, well. That is just—it's not just a misdescription. You're not just misdescribing the nature of these evils, but you're getting the whole—a uh, whole way of understanding morality wrong. And so, um, that's just a few problems with the whole theoretical approach. But when it comes to well, how do you understand God? How does a different understanding of God help? Well, uh, that's a big question as well. Um, I think my view is that when you go back to the classical sources, when you go back to uh, the writings of the, the major theologians of the Christian tradition, but also other uh, theistic traditions, uh, you see a very un different understanding of God, one which is far less anthropomorphic than the kind of God you find in a lot of contemporary philosophy of religion. And uh, when God is understood in, in this far less anthropomorphic way, that doesn't instantly resolve the problem of evil, but I do think it gives you a different perspective. And you might, have, you might even go so far as to say that it, it kind of undercuts a lot of the presuppositions that motivate the problem of evil in the first place. So, how can you explain a little bit how that works? Well, um, okay. Well, here's here's one way in which this might work. Um, if you take one of the one of the central elements in the medieval conception of God that you find in people like Aquinas, but this is not just a, 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 a Thomist view. It is a view that I think is almost universal in the uh, medieval Christian tradition. Uh, and that is the, the doctrine of divine simplicity, that God ha has absolutely no parts. There is no division or composition in God. Um, 
when you take that as your starting point, or at least as one of the uh, foundational elements in your conception of God, then I think you, 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 you would take a very different approach to how you see God and, and also how you see the problem of evil, in the sense that, uh, well, take for example the problem of how is God related to morality, uh, the so-called euthyphro problem. Does God do what is right because it is right, or is it right because God uh, wills it to be right? Right. Um, so that, this is a, a famous problem that goes back to all the way to Plato's uh, dialogue, the Euthyphro. Now, if you accept the doctrine of divine simplicity, then the kind of response you would have to make to this problem is that, well, it's not so much that God is good, or God is powerful, or God is knowledgeable, but that God is goodness itself. It's like the point I made a bit earlier, that God is love. Uh, he's not a loving person or a loving being. God is love, and God is goodness, and so on. So that's what the doctrine of divine simplicity basically teaches. And if you hold that view about the relationship between God and morality, then uh, the very idea of um, thinking about the problem of evil as a problem which might provide some kind of evidence against the existence of God turns out to be something like a, a, a pseudo-problem in a way because you're presuming in, in stating, in just in stating the problem that uh, morality is in some sense independent of God Whereas on the simplicity view, uh, God is in, is in some sense the foundation of morality. And morality is not independent of God. Um, there are other, uh, other issues here as well, apart from uh, the doctrine of simplicity. You could point to uh, the idea of, well, does it make sense to think of God as someone who uh, could, say, succeed or fail at something, or s someone who possesses uh, a good or virtuous character, uh, or someone who uh, follows certain moral rules or fulfills certain duties? You know, this kind of way of thinking about God, how much sense does it actually make? I mean, is, is this really... Uh, the kind of God that you find in the uh, in the Christian tradition. So that's how going back to a more, I think, traditional conception of God may help to cast new light on the problem of evil and may help to actually not so much resolve it, but dissolve it. it is God a person on that view? Well, no. God has, in the Christian tradition, God is not a person. God is personal in the sense that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are persons. But again, they're not persons in the way in which you and I are persons. Mm -hmm. They're persons in a, in a much different sense. 
Uh, and so even the very word person, when applied to God, is very liable to a misunderstanding. Uh, because when we think of person, we think of someone who has their own center of consciousness, their own will, uh, their own independent way of acting. But that is not at all how the persons of that make up the Trinity, that's not at all how they're conceived in the Christian tradition. And God has, has all, never really been thought of as a person in, in the mainstream Christian tradition, but also in, in I think, in, uh, the same would hold um, in uh, many, many parts of Islam and Judaism. Well, I'd love to talk to you as well about your most recent book, The End of Philosophy of Religion. What was, you know, that's a fair bit of that is about the analytic approach to philosophy of religion and the continental approach to philosophy of religion and the interaction between the two. I wonder if you might explain some of what you were trying to say there. Uh, I think myself and a lot of my listeners are pretty ignorant of the continental uh, approach. Oh, okay. Well, there's a big question uh, about whether there is such a thing as a continental tradition. Uh -huh. Simon Glendening, uh, a philosopher from the UK, has recently uh, written a book actually arguing that there is no such thing as continental philosophy. Um, so, but I presume, just for the sake of argument in my book, that there is. Um, <laughs> and the reason why people have, have doubted this is that there is just so much variety within the so-called continental tradition. There are just uh -huh. so many different schools of thought that there is nothing really unifying them. And to just lump them with this label, continental philosophy, is to uh, just is just to pass over and ignore uh, what is really going on there. Whereas the analytic tradition is a bit more unity. Yeah. Uh, even though that has largely disappeared lately, uh, because there are just the way in which, for example, analysis is thought of today. There are just so many different approaches and understandings of what it means to analyze concepts and so on, or to practice philosophy of religion or philosophy generally from an analytic standpoint. There are just so many different ways of doing that today. But generally, very broadly speaking, it's something like the uh, often heard uh, debates and discussions around uh, the arts or humanities versus the sciences. So the analytic tradition generally tries to uh, hold up the sciences, particularly the natural and formal sciences, as some kind of ideal that we ought to at least, well, to emulate in some way. Um, so what you find in analytic philosophy, there is a, a lot of value that's placed on things like uh, formal logic, uh, looking out for fallacies in arguments, uh, stating things in a very clear and precise way, looking for evidence for and against various hypotheses, stating hypotheses, testing them through things like counterexamples, thought experiments. So there's a very kind of quasi-scientific approach going on here. And when you compare that to a lot of the stuff that's going on in continental philosophy from and continental philosophy includes a variety of schools, as I mentioned, things like uh, existentialism, phenomenology, hermeneutics, uh, critical theory, 
post-structuralism. There isn't, there isn't a lot of unity there between these different schools. But one thing that they do have in common, I think, or, they, or most of them have in common, is the idea that science or scientific type methodologies are not the only or even the best way to knowledge and truth. So they generally look towards fields outside of science, such as literature, um, art, but also uh, a lot of social sciences, psychoanalysis, for example. Mm -hmm. They look to these kinds of fields as providing insights that you could not readily obtain through uh, a more kind of empirical or logical methodology. Uh, and also another difference, which is becoming much less of a difference lately um, between the two traditions, is that in the continental tradition there was more of a kind of um, holistic approach to philosophical problems. So you when you look at a philosophical problem, you look you look at it in all its different dimensions, not just uh, not just how the problem looks to us today, but how it was assessed in the past, uh, how its political ramifications, mm -hmm. um, how psychologists discuss it. Um, so you look at it in, 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 a, in uh, a much broader way. And so, so continental philosophy tends to be more historical in its focus. Uh, it won't just take pluck a problem out from one of the great books of the past and discuss it in contemporary terms, it will try to understand it within its own context before making any attempt to resolve it. And then what's your book about the end of philosophy of religion in relation to the analytic and continental divide? I, I have to preface my remarks by saying that uh, I have gone on since writing that book, which wasn't very long time ago, but I have gone on since then to uh, change and moderate my views a bit. Huh. Um, but um, in any case, the, the position I took there was that when the, the, this division between analytic and continental philosophy, when you look at that division and see how it manifests itself or how it has manifested itself in philosophy of religion, then I think that the, what becomes obvious are the many limitations of the analytic approach. The kinds of limitations that I looked at were limitations in style, in how philosophy is written, especially philosophy of religion, and the kind of presuppositions that underlie this, this style, things like the idea I mentioned earlier, that the best way to understand something is by means of some kind of scientific or quasi-scientific methodology. And it's not that the continental tradition doesn't value these things. And I thought this is a, a common misunderstanding. It's just that the, the way in which things like clarity and precision are understood by continental philosophers is very different. Uh, so they also want to achieve a certain kind of clarity, but it's not the kind of clarity you'll find in analytic philosophy. Um, and basically my line of argument was that when you're focusing on the philosophical study of religion, uh, I think the continental approach has 
a lot more, you could say, benefits and advantages over the analytic approach because it's not restricted to purely uh, formal and quasi-scientific methods. And so it allows for a much more, a, a deeper kind of engagement with religion. So that's in broad outline the kind of view I talk. Whereas now I tend to think that, well, there are probably much more, many more virtues and many more, vi many more virtues in the analytic tradition and many more vices in the continental tradition than I had presumed to be the case. But overall, I, I still do think that analytic philosophers stand to gain much more than they usually think by uh, studying and getting to learn uh, the writings of continental philosophers, especially when it comes to philosophy mm -hmm. of religion. So this kind of ignorance that you find on both sides of each other's work is, I think, a, a state to be deplored. Well, I can certainly take that, uh, that note of encouragement under advisement. <laughs> Maybe you could recommend to uh, myself and to my listeners some starting places for continental philosophy of religion. Well, one of the leading people in, in the field in continental philosophy of religion has been uh, John Caputo, mm -hmm. who is now at Syracuse University. Anything by him, it, it, at least it has the appearance of being accessible. So, <laughs> uh, so you, could, you could read a lot of his work. One of his more introductory books is a, is a very short book called On Religion. It's not, a, it's not a difficult read at all, but it does take... Uh, it does have a particular perspective on religious faith, which is very different from much of what you find in the analytic tradition. You know, I think I read one of Caputo's book a couple of years ago. It might have been Philosophy right. and Theology, but it was a it was a strange experience for me because um, by then I was an atheist. But I, as I was reading through the book, I started to realize that I didn't actually disagree with any of his sentences. <laughs> I just, right, right, I, I, there was right. nothing really to disagree with with anything that he was saying. It was just, um, it was a very different picture of the relationship between philosophy and theology than the way that I would paint it. But I couldn't, there wasn't actually any sentences where I could say, no, that's false. <laughs> so it was a very strange experience for me reading that book. Yeah, well, he does have a very, uh, you could say, probably the closest analog uh, within the analytic tradition would be the kind of view that many Wittgensteinian philosophers have of religious belief, mm. where there is an idea, there is a concept of truth at play here, but it's understood in a very different way from the way in which it's understood by many analytic philosophers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that is probably the best way to understand much of what Caputo is saying. Um, but Caputo is far more influenced by someone like Derrida than yeah. someone like Wittgenstein, um, but there are many others in the continental tradition who take what I would say is a much more traditional approach to religious belief than Caputo. Caputo stands in a, in a far more liberal tradition of theology. So in the more kind of conservative vein of continental philosophy of religion, there are people like Mirod Westphal, uh, Kevin Hart, uh, Jean-Luc Marion, these are people who uh, 
are very indebted to a lot of the, uh, you, know, you could say, existentialist writings, especially Heidegger, but who think that there is something of value to be had in uh, applying the insights of people like Heidegger to contemporary philosophical and theological problems. But they're not out to, I think, reformulate or redesign religion in the way in which Caputo tries to do. Actually, I, when I first came across your work, I came across The God Beyond Belief, and I just assumed that right. uh, this was written by an atheist. Uh, and then when I, oh. when, I, when I learned that you were a believer, and now just in this interview, when I learned that your impetus for doing that study was to engage with what you saw as a, as a serious problem, uh, you know, I have a lot of respect for that in, in trying to figure out what is the truth, not just... Um, because you don't take yeah. an apologetic philosophical approach like someone like uh, Moreland or uh, Craig or somebody like that would take. Well, I don't, I'm not necessarily opposed to the kind of apologetics that someone like Craig engages in, but that's not exactly what I'm trying to do either. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much value there is in the kind of debate that um, you often see between theists and atheists. Yeah. Yeah, well, and anyone who reads my blog will know that I have a lot of respect for Craig, and I repeatedly say that he has a better grasp on a lot of what he's talking about than most of his opponents do. Right. I disagree with his conclusions, but I appreciate right. what he's doing in making arguments that are logically valid and have plausible premises. You know, I think that's, yep, yep. as an analytic, uh, analytically inclined thinker, I have a lot of respect yep. for that. Yeah, sure. Well, I'd like to end with what is probably a difficult question. Uh, in addition to analytic philosophers being more familiar with continental philosophy and continental philosophy philosophers being more uh, familiar with analytic tradition, I yeah. wonder what else would you like to see in philosophy of religion in particular and, and philosophy generally in the next couple of decades? Oh, well... <laughs> That's a big question. There's a lot that I'd like to see. I would like to see a greater engagement with not just the Western stream of Christianity, but also the Eastern stream. Mm -hmm. uh, historians of, of, of theology are usually well-versed in both the West and the East, but philosophers of religion, especially those in the analytic tradition, uh, just tend to be ignorant of what has gone on in the East. I think there has to be an attempt made to connect philosophy more with issues of meaning in, in life because that is one of, or at least it's one of the main reasons why people get interested in philosophy in the first place. And after many years of philosophical study in the academy and the university, those kind of big questions about life about death, about meaning, tend to get pushed to the edges and you end up being uh, a specialist in a very narrow field without really having even addressed the big questions that you got you interested in all this stuff in the first place. And I think what's really required is more of an attempt to address the really big questions of meaning and purpose in life 
so that philosophy is seen as something which is not merely a kind of a technical discipline where you're trying to resolve problems in an almost technical scientific way but it's something which is more like a way of life, a way of seeing the world which helps you to live better. That's my hope of what philosophy might become in the future. I hope that is what happens. On that hopeful note, Dr. Kakis, I would like to thank you for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Luke.